It would not be an exaggeration to claim that the Korean War shaped the course of history. There had been bloodshed elsewhere in the world that bookmarked the start of the bitter conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union that would rage until 1991, but it was Korea where the conflict was most pronounced. But this pivotal event, as we observe it today in retrospect, is also often deeply flawed. We assume that the Korean War left the United States and South Korea closer together, military allies that would go on to fight together in Vietnam and the Middle East, and we assume that North Korea was determined to try their luck again at a military invasion of South Korea. History could not be further from the truth. The early years of the US-Korea alliance were tenuous, one that was not expected to last too long, and the North Korean regime focused on developing its economy to garner legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis their rival in Seoul. To discuss this and more, we have with us today Professors James Person and William Stuck for a discussion moderated by KEI Vice President Mark Tokolo. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Korean Context. On June 25th, will mark the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War. Apart from remembering the sacrifice of the soldiers and the catastrophic effects the war had in the Korean population, the history is worth discussing because the origins of the war and its outcome still shape the world today. We're privileged to have with us to discuss this topic two eminent historians, Dr. William Stoke and Dr. James Person. Um, so Bill, can I ask you to go first, please? I want to talk about the Korean War in the context of the evolution of U.S.-South Korean relations. And I want to start partly quoting and then paraphrasing a document written by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in September of 1947, which stated that from the standpoint of military security, the United States has little strategic interest in maintaining troops and bases in Korea. And it went on to say that any U.S. offensive on mainland East Asia would bypass the peninsula and that air power stationed in Japan and in Okinawa could neutralize any threat that the Soviet Union posed to the United States military position in the region. Now, I'd like to move backwards temporarily four years to October of 1943 and quote a State Department document which stands out in contrast. It stated, Korea may appear to offer a tempting opportunity to Soviet Premier Stalin to strengthen the enormous economic resources of the Soviet Far East, to acquire ice-free ports, and to occupy a dominating strategic position in relation both to China and to Japan. A Soviet occupation of Korea would create an entirely new strategic situation in the Far East, and its repercussions within China and Japan might be far-reaching. So, I want to deal with three questions here. First, how do we get from this analysis of 1943 to the one of September 1947? Second, how do we get from September 1947 to June of 1950 when the United States intervenes militarily in the face of the North Korean attack? And finally, how do we get from that intervention to the development of an enduring alliance between the United States and the Republic of Korea. Let me start with the first question by pointing out that in 1945, the decision to occupy part of Korea that occurred in the summer of that year 
was an act of containment of the Soviet Union. There's really no question about that. The phrase was not used, but if you look at the documents, there's no question that the United States was sending troops there because it wanted to prevent the Soviet Union from occupying the entire peninsula. This decision came at a time when the United States was fully mobilized for war, whereas the JCS assessment of September 1947 came after two years of a messy occupation of South Korea, the rapid demobilization of U.S. forces, and the rise of high-cost challenges in Europe. That is to say, 1947, the year of the Greek-Turkish aid program and the origins of the Marshall Plan. The subsequent withdrawal of U.S. forces from Korea between 1947 and June of 1949 can be explained in this context. And that, of course, included a very shaky relationship between the United States and the government of Syngman Rhee, which was established in the summer of 1948. There was a real psychological problem in many ways between the United States and South Korea at this time. For one thing, the Koreans had expected to be freed immediately after World War II with the defeat of Japan, and that was not in the American agenda. It was felt that Korea would need a period of tutelage before it became independent and could rule itself. Now, part of that psychological problem was alleviated in 1948 with the granting of South Korea's independence, but there still was, especially on the side of the Korean right, real resentment that the United States had been a major factor, arguably the key factor, in dividing Korea in 1945. The Americans, on the other hand, their point of view was basically, look, we liberated you from Japan. By the time we got to Korea, Soviet troops were already there. So what we did essentially was save half of the peninsula from communism. So there is that psychological division between the two sides that is very pronounced really in the process leading to the American withdrawal in June of 1949. However, by that time, the American stake in Korea was considerable. That is to say, the United States had been the lone occupier of South Korea and the Soviet Union was the lone occupier of the North. It was the only occupation after World War II that involved the United States and the Soviet Union alone. That created a sense of a political stake on the part of the United States, essentially to win or at least have a draw in the outcome on Korea. Then the United States went to the United Nations in September of 1947 to, in effect, create a independent government within South Korea. So the State Department felt that there was a major credibility problem that we had in Korea that we couldn't simply write off the peninsula. And that really was the foundation for the intervention militarily in June 1950 when North Korea attacked. Now, even with that intervention, Korea remained very much secondary in American strategic thinking. And I think that fact is illustrated with the decision of the United States in late 1950 and early 1951 not to expand the war. So why, after the armistice was signed in July of 1950, did the United States immediately move to establish a military alliance with the Republic of Korea? 
And the answer essentially is because Syngman Rhee threatened to refuse to either sign or abide by the armistice unless the United States gave him a national security treaty. In fact, the United States really did not want such an alliance at the time for several reasons. For one thing, the United States feared that Rhee would find a way to break the armistice and force the United States to help him unite the peninsula militarily. And that was the last thing the United States wanted. Second, even if the war started with an attack from the North, the United States wanted to maintain the flexibility in light of possible situations elsewhere. One thing that's very important in understanding the intervention in June 1950 is that combat troops were not sent there until intelligence indicated pretty clearly that this was an isolated incident. It was not the beginning of a major Soviet offensive along its periphery. And that was still a concern in 1953. That is, if fighting did break out, the United States didn't want to have a lot of troops bogged down there if there was a lot of action elsewhere. Thirdly, the United States wanted to explore the possibility of neutralization of the peninsula. And it was felt that if there was a formal alliance between the United States and South Korea, that would make any negotiations with the communists much, much more difficult. As it turned out, that whole idea pretty much fizzled in light of the fact that the American military was never really on board with it, nor was Syngman Rhee. And finally, the United States did not want a formal alliance with South Korea because it wanted to continue to feature the role of the United Nations on the peninsula as a deterrent to future problems, but also as a contribution of military forces to the UN command. And it was felt that if the United States formed a bilateral pact with South Korea, it would provide an excuse for other contributors to the UN command to withdraw their troops. And of course, over time between 53 and 57, 58, that's exactly what happened. There was a very substantial decline in the contribution of other UN members to the United Nations command. So what happened to make it successful? Let me just quote for a moment or summarize a US policy paper in November of 1965, which is rather revealing in the evolution of how Americans defined US interests in Korea. There were two elements of continuity in the paper. First, U.S. interests included the desire to prove in Asia through the Korean example, and as in Taiwan, the viability of the non-communist approach to nation building. And we can see rhetoric somewhat to this effect going all the way back to 1946 and documents that included Harry Truman signing off that this was an area of contest between the United States and the Soviet Union and was very important in terms of the future of democracy in Asia. A second continuity in this document was that our position in Korea was necessary to maintain, to demonstrate the dependability of the United States in supporting its allies. But two other considerations also appeared in the 1965 paper. First was to maintain Korea, quote, as a buffer between Japan and communist Asia. And second, to maintain, and I quote, a forward free world defense position on the Asian mainland. 
So how do we explain these additional sources of sense of interest of the United States in Korea? For one thing, the Korean War had made possible a large increase in American defense spending and preparedness. In fact, from the Korean War on, the United States, through the rest of the Cold War, was in a position of semi-mobilization. So you didn't have the problem after the Korean War about demobilizing our armed forces almost completely as we had had after World War II. By late 1965, very concrete signs had emerged that the Republic of Korea could become less of a strategic liability to the United States and perhaps even a strategic asset. And I'll just note in concluding here a couple of things. First was the settlement of South Korea with Japan, led by Park Chung-hee. This, of course, gave the Americans hope that South Korea would get a real economic boost that would make it less dependent on the United States. Second came the commitment of South Korean troops to Vietnam. And this was very important to the United States because the United States wanted to convey the idea that this war in Vietnam was not just uh, white versus yellow. It was, in fact, not just the United States, but in fact, there were Asian peoples that were contributing to it. And as it turned out, South Korea contributed in a really major way to the Vietnam War. A third and perhaps not so obvious factor was that by 1965, the United States had stationed tactical nuclear weapons in the Republic of Korea. And the South Koreans never had a problem with nuclear weapons being stationed there like the Japanese did. But one of the dimensions to that was that the United States could reach with those weapons parts of China. And that was considered to be a significant deterrent on Chinese mischief, not only in Korea, but perhaps even elsewhere. So let me just conclude that there have been many rocky patches in the alliance since its height, what I think probably was its height in the mid-1960s, but it has survived well into the post-war world and in all likelihood will even survive four years of Donald Trump. Thanks, Bill. That was fascinating. <clears throat> what you highlight is it's never been simple. So, <laughs> yes. James? Let me turn now to the ways that the Korean War experience shaped North Korea's diplomatic behavior. We all know that the DPRK was saved from oblivion thanks to the intervention of the Chinese People's Volunteers in the fall of 1950. However, the Korean War also served as a sources of tension that emerged during the conflict between North Korea and its patron allies, the Soviet Union and China. Looking at the Soviet Union, while Stalin did give Kim Il-sung the green light to invade the South and provided Kim with the weapons, the offensive weapons, and also a plan of attack, the Soviet Union did not come to Kim's aid when defeat looked certain after the Incheon landing and before the Chinese had actually committed themselves to send the so-called volunteers. Stalin simply advised Kim to retreat to Chinese and the Soviet territory and to consider his options. It doesn't take a professional psychologist to realize quite what damage this would do to Kim's perception of the USSR as a reliable patron. So there were clear disappointment in Soviet actions in the conflict. Turning to China, we frequently hear about the alliance forged in blood. 
We hear that as a result of the experience, the North Koreans and the Chinese became as close as lips and teeth, you know, suggesting a level of intimacy that is really uncommon among states. But the war was also a source of tension with Beijing. After the entry of the Chinese People's Volunteers in late fall of 1950, the PRC took over control of field operations. This freed Kim to focus on the consolidation of his domestic authority. It also resulted in disagreements over tactics and the use of resources, for example. You have, for example, Kim wanting to utilize railroads to begin reconstruction efforts as soon as battle lines stabilized. The Chinese disagreed, however, and would not permit him to use the railroads for anything other than military operations. This led to a conflict and the perception that the Chinese were being overly interventionist in Korean politics and not respectful of Korean sovereignty. Tensions, particularly with the Chinese, lingered long after the armistice in July 1953. The Korean War ended up being really one of the first of, of many occasions where North Korea felt that their allies were unreliable. In the case of the Soviets, there was the perception that they were not committed to Korean security all the way. This belief was reinforced a decade later, despite having obtained from Moscow a mutual defense agreement in June of 1961. Kim felt betrayed just a little over a year later when he saw the Cubans being betrayed, to his mind at least, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 62 Cuban Missile Crisis. And then on top of that, the Soviets refused to provide weapons to the North Koreans when they asked for them in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This demonstrated to the North Koreans that the Soviets, if push came to shove, could not be trusted to support their protege allies. For the Chinese, there was this perception in North Korea that they were not respectful of Korean sovereignty. This was again demonstrated during events in 1956 in North Korea when the Chinese and the Soviets thought better interfered in a domestic party dispute. The Korean War experience also revealed dependence on Moscow and Beijing, particularly for weapons. This was in Kim's mind when he planned for Korea's post-war economic development. Let me now turn briefly to North Korea's approach to national unification and how that was shaped by the Korean War experience. After Kim's failed bid to reunify the peninsula, he took a completely different approach to unification. So throughout the rest of the 50s, he did not seek to reunify the peninsula by force. I haven't even seen evidence that he even tried to topple the government in Seoul through subversion. Soviet records from after the war reveal that Moscow was in fact frustrated with Kim for not being more proactive in inter-Korean relations, for not seeking to cultivate ties with progressive elements in South Korea. Kim was dismissive of the Soviet criticism, however. He thought that there weren't progressives in South Korea anymore. They either came north or were likely killed by Sung Min Rae. Kim instead shifted his focus toward the economy. He sought to take advantage of the near total destruction of cities and industry in the country to rebuild in a manner that would eliminate colonial era distortions to the national economy and prevent the potential for future dependency relationships, especially dependency relationships on allies, on the Soviet Union and China. This included especially in the production of weapons. Through general industrialization, with an emphasis on heavy industry, North Korea would become a strong, powerful, and independent country. Industrial development, Kim believed, would serve as a magnet for the people of South Korea who would be so impressed with what was achieved in the North that they would shift their allegiance to the DPRK. This seems to have been the strategy throughout the rest of the 1950s. And this policy, which was really focused on development first and unification later, 
really lasted right up through 1960, when events in South Korea caught Kim by surprise. The ouster of Syngman Rhee in April 1960 shocked the North Korean leadership. They could have never have imagined that a popular movement would force the authoritarian Rhee from office. And they were disappointed, of course, that they had actually played no role in Rhee's ouster. In the weeks after the April Revolution, North Korea shifted its policy towards the DPRK and subversion and support for progressive elements was all back on the table again. There was real optimism for unification in North Korea throughout 1960. There was a belief that unification was not only possible, but was imminent. This ended abruptly, however, in May of 1961, when Park Chung-hee seized power and established an anti-communist military junta. Park's junta, interestingly, shared Kim's zeal for economic development. Park also adopted a policy similar to that of Kim of development first and unification later. Park was more successful, however, than Kim was thanks to his ability to secure capital and to get access to advanced technologies. Professor Stuck mentioned the relationship with Japan under Park. You have the normalization in 1965, which gave South Korea access to the advanced technologies and to capital that they needed to develop their economy. And then by sending, for example, troops to Vietnam, this also resulted in loans and contracts that led to an infusion of capital to fund Park's economic development. Kim did not have this. He could not get access to the necessary capital and the advanced technologies to sustain North Korea's economic development. And this was a result of emerging tensions in Sino-Soviet relations. The idea that Kim was able to skillfully play Moscow and Beijing off one another and extract maximum concessions is inaccurate. He suffered greatly as a result of the Sino-Soviet split. By the end of the 1960s, Park had managed to surpass North Korea and Kim lost the competition for using industrial development as a magnet for unification. I always tell my students that much of North Korea's contemporary behavior can be more accurately interpreted or better understood if we better understand this important period in North Korean history, the Korean War era and the immediate post-Korean War era. The Korean War experience shaped North Korea's behavior long after the armistice. The destruction left the tremendous sense of insecurity and vulnerability, which could not be assuaged by allies. In fact, the behavior of allies during the war and, and after only reinforced Kim's belief that you can rely only on yourself. James, I'm interested in kind of Kim Il-sung's agency. So it's pretty apparent now that before the war started, he had a lot of influence. He went to see Stalin, he went to see Mao, he was able to persuade them to support him in his, his invasion. But how much influence did Kim Il-sung have on Moscow and Beijing after the war. So for example, the 1954 Geneva Conference, did North Korea set its own positions for the conference or were the terms being set by Russia and China? There was certainly a lot of coordination between the three, much more than on the other side of the Geneva Conference where you had the United States and South Korea and the 13 countries that fought under the banner of the United Nations. You know, there were planning meetings ahead of Geneva Conference. You had the decision that Molotov would sort of be the spokesperson, but the North Koreans did not simply follow all directives. They certainly had their own policy priorities, including, for example, they would not accept free elections on the Korean Peninsula, which was something that was raised as a possibility. So the North Koreans did have enough agency to object to policies, and, and you know, they simply were not following the Soviet and Chinese directives. Bill, moving on chronologically, in the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. must have felt the needs to promote democracy in South Korea. 
and also to keep South Korea as a staunch Cold War ally. So how did it balance those two in impulses? It's clear to me that from June 1950 onward, security trumped democracy as an objective. I think before the war, the United States was willing to push harder than it was later on, and that's demonstrated in the spring of 1950 when Secretary of State Acheson actually warns the South Koreans if they don't hold an election in late May, a scheduled election under the Constitution, that the Americans would reevaluate their economic aid program and military aid program to South Korea. After the war, the United States certainly tried to push or nudge, I think nudge is probably a better word than push, the South Koreans towards democracy. But the two times when the United States really came down on the side of democracy in terms of being active in a crisis were 1960 and 1987. And the distinctive feature of those crises was the likelihood of civil war in South Korea if democracy did not occur. So in those two situations, the concern for security and the concern to promote democracy were in sync. James, my last question is about the North Korean relationship with Russia and China, respectively. So people forget how important the Russian relationship was because China is so dominant now. Going back and forth, you mentioned the Cultural Revolution as, as being a time when relations became difficult between uh, China and North Korea. At what point did the Soviet Union or Russia really kind of yield to China in its dealings with North Korea? Or when did North Korea give up on Russia, I guess? As I mentioned briefly, I think the notion that North Korea could skillfully play them off one another, exploiting the tensions of the Sino-Soviet split, I think that's dramatically overstated, if not completely inaccurate. They never enjoyed sufficient leverage over either Moscow or Beijing to play them off one another to extract maximum concessions. This is something we need to, I think, re-examine because we use this today to examine the relationship between Washington and Beijing and North Korea's maneuvering. The North Koreans, for example, during the Cultural Revolution, had no choice but to turn to Russia, but Russia was not forthcoming with advanced aid or any efforts to really lighten North Korea's burden. A good example would be, you know, if, so the North Koreans go to the Russians and say, we need this technology for our industry. And let's say, what are we on now? We're on iPhone 11. Then they offer a, an iPhone 2 to the North Koreans. And the North Koreans were frustrated by this consistently. The Soviets were always offering older generation equipment, you know, so there was never really a, an opportunity to have sufficient leverage to extract. When things were bad with Moscow, they were so bad that they couldn't actually, you know, get what they really needed from the Chinese, who themselves were incapable of giving advanced technology and capital. And when relations were bad with China, the Soviets didn't have to even try. But uh, the North Koreans, more than anything, tried to carve out some measure of independence in the Sino-Soviet split and to maintain a policy of equidistance, to minimize the damage caused by the conflict between Moscow and Beijing, and by the actions of Moscow and Beijing in the broader global Cold War, including in, for example, rapprochement between the United States and China, or detente with uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. The North Koreans were, were much more reactive, um, and just, again, tried to carve out some measure of independence in that conflict. That's it for the episode today. Many thanks to James Person, William Stook, Mark Tokola, and to you listeners for tuning in. 
Towards the end of the episode, Mark Tokola and James Person mentioned the peace talks that were held in Geneva in 1954. If you are curious about this largely forgotten historical event in which the world powers attempted to address both the division of Korea and Vietnam, tune in next week for an episode dedicated to that remarkable conference. Bringing things to the modern era, we have a really exciting event next week with Dr. Gordon Flake on what it means for Australia and South Korea to attend the G7 summit and what roles they might play in the geopolitical tensions between China and the United States going forward. You can find the RSVP to that event in the description of this episode. Hope to see you then.